This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Ken McLeod, Buddhist teacher and author of the newly released book, The Magic of Vajrayana. In today's conversation, we explore four ways of working in spiritual practice, sometimes characterized by the archetypal forms of king, warrior, magician, and lover. We discuss how these ways, compassion, will, insight, and ecstasy, can be brought into balance for a richer and more complete spiritual engagement with life. One of the more innovative Buddhist teachers today, Ken McLeod is known for his clear explanations, poetic translations, and pragmatic approach to practice. He is one of the first generation of Western teachers in the Tibetan tradition, and one of the few to be authorized to transmit the full scope of these teachings to students. In particular, his approach resonates strongly with those whose paths lie outside established institutions. After graduating with a degree in mathematics, Kin cycled across Europe to Istanbul and then continued his journey overland to India. In 1970, he met his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, at his monastery near Darjeeling. There, Kin began a study and practice in Tibetan Buddhism that lasted more than 20 years. He completed the traditional three-year retreat program two times, translated for many teachers, and helped set up Buddhist centers in Canada and the United States. After his teacher's passing, Ken moved away from the hierarchical structures of Asian Buddhism to explore new approaches. In 1990, he founded Unfettered Mind in Los Angeles. His approach of one-on-one consultations roiled the Buddhist world in the early 90s, but was quickly recognized as a viable way to teach and guide students in the West. He made individual interviews a central feature of the many retreats he taught in California, New Mexico, and British Columbia. Through numerous small groups in Southern California, he developed the materials that became the encyclopedic meditation manual, Wake Up to Your Life. Now retired from formal teaching, he lives in Northern California where he hikes and writes. His writings and translations include The Great Path of Awakening, Wake Up to Your Life, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, A Trackless Path, and The Magic of Vajrayana, as well as a corpus of articles and translations in Tricycle and other Buddhist magazines. Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Once again, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Once again, it's a pleasure to uh, welcome you. And so um, I want to get started by asking you about the reason that uh, we're here. You suggested a topic um, to us last week, and you suggested that uh, we familiarize ourselves with uh, a Jungian archetypal analysis of masculinity, essentially, and I'm wondering what what it was about that material that um, led you to uh, suggest a mystical positivist conversation about it. Well, let me turn the clock back a few years. Uh, within a couple of, I came to LA in 1985. And uh, I wasn't in terribly good shape, 
my teacher had sent me to L.A. to take over what was a pretty moribund center. And uh, I was very much uh, trying to recover from the stress and uh, difficulties I'd had in the three-year retreats. A couple of years after I uh, was here, I got to get to know a person who originally came to study with me, uh, but I gradually understood that he knew a lot more than he was letting on. Okay. And he ended up teaching me Tai Chi and some other energy techniques which helped me. And uh, we started to meet weekly and uh, sharing what each of us had learned in our respective trainings. His background was primarily the Gurdjieff work and uh, martial arts. Uh, he explored many other things, but those were his primary resources. And mine was Tibetan Buddhism, of course. He came across a book by a woman called Angelus Arian, uh, who lives here in the Bay Area, called The Fourfold Way. And he suggested that I should read it, which I did. And in our ensuing discussions, we came to understand that each of us had specialized in a couple of the two ways and were weak in the other two. It happened that they were opposite. He knew a lot about power and ecstasy, and Buddhism in general, and Tibetan Buddhism in particular, is expert uh, in compassion and insight. This combination proved extremely fruitful for uh, both of us because we held for each other the keys to where the other one was locked. And I taught him the insight and compassion practices in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which I was very familiar with, and he helped me form a relationship with power and ecstasy, which has made a huge difference in my own life, as in my personal practice, but as well as in my life. And we spend a lot of time exploring the four ways in different ways, going somewhat beyond, I think, uh, Angela Sarian's treatment, which is pretty good. And uh, Gillette and Moore's book, the one which you're referring to, um, King Lover, Warrior, Magician, is, as you say, a Jungian analysis. Uh, and it dovetails, or it's not dovetail, it, uh, it's a different way of approaching the same four qualities, power, ecstasy, insight, and compassion. Uh, King, lover, warrior, magician, the warrior, of course, is power. The uh, lover is ecstasy. The magician is insight. And uh, the king is uh, compassion. This also shows up very interestingly in a lot of different areas. Uh, In business, you have uh, do and relate and plan and uh, lead. Those are actually the same four. Do is the warrior or power. Uh, Relate, communication, this is uh, ecstasy. 
the uh, plan is insight because you have to figure out how you're going to do what you do. And lead is, compa- is actually compassion. And this fits very well with Stephen Block's, uh, not, uh, Peter Block, all right? Um, stewardship, in which mm-hmm. he sees the responsibility of leader is to take care of the organization or the country or the group or whatever it is, which is basically about service, which is yeah, the, the role of the leader. Yeah, that's right. So <clears throat> these have uh, these four ways of working, which is the terminology that he and I settled on, have tremendously wide range of application, and they show up um, very, very deeply embedded in Buddhist thought, something that I didn't appreciate exactly until I uh, did a weekend retreat with uh, Harada Roshi. Uh, a friend took me there, and uh, in the middle of this, he came out with these things, and I went, I'd never encountered them explicitly in Buddhism, and I said to him, so where did you, where does that come from? And he looked at me and thought for quite a few minutes, which is uncharacteristic of a Zen teacher, and said, mm, just basic Buddhist thinking, isn't it? And I went, well, maybe it is, but uh, I've never come across them, and yet I know this material from other sources, so where do you get it in Buddhism? And then, much to my surprise, he connected them with the five aspects of timeless awareness. You, can you elaborate what those are? For you? Um, these timeless awareness, uh, jnana is the Sanskrit word, it's the uh, non-conceptual open awareness that one strives for in mystical practice, basically, or strives to uncover. And uh, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism in general, but in particular in Vajrayana, they are divided or uh, distinguished in a certain way according to function. So there's uh, mirror-like pristine awareness where the world just arises as if you're looking at a reflection in a mirror. Uh, or experience arises, not just the world. The mirror like pristine awareness or timeless awareness. Uh, then there's uh, distinguishing and balancing timeless awareness. Uh, time, the t- balancing is usually translated as evenness or sameness or something like that. But, Equanimity? Uh, equanimous, timeless awareness, but it, it doesn't really. Uh, I found that balance is a better term, mm. at least not in all contexts, but many. <laughs> and then, uh, and then there's the activity of doing of translating this into action. That's effective, timeless awareness. And then the totality is the fifth one, which is uh, the um, timeless awareness of totality. Mm. I mean, it's interesting for me because in the <clears throat> Western magical tradition, the uh, four elements plus the quintessence are yeah. uh, figure prominently in practice and they map pretty closely to this fourfold um, uh, yes you, you, you have to be careful about how you apply the elements because they they actually are a different system and they can be mapped in a number of different ways yeah I mean all of these systems I mean it is a I mean <clears throat> this, this is an interesting point because these are all mappings and uh, once you have your um, as a mathematician would say your basis set then you can you can orient from that yeah. but but the you know the king, the warrior, the uh, magician, and the lover also map pretty closely. I think to uh, in this case it'd be earth, fire, um, water, and air. 
Or fire, air, and water. Sorry. Well, I have some material with me, which yeah. uh, we, we can we can discuss the map. We, we, we can explore a bit. Uh, another important piece here is that they uh, these same four ways uh, link very very strongly with uh, the four measurables of loving kindness, uh, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Uh, in that they are the emotional expressions of these four ways. When you uh, are vying in a contest and you, uh, you, 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 you triumph, it's a celebration, you experience joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when, you, uh, the, in, when you're the lover or the healer is about opening uh, and, and, and that experience is one of warmth, of loving kindness. And uh, insight... In order to practice insight, you have to be equanimous. You cannot make judgments because judgments prevent you from seeing deeply into the way things work. Well, this, and, I'm, I'm going to jump in here because this is, this is one of the uh, substantial questions that I had in reading the material you, that you suggested. And, um, and I'll, I'll lay a foundation by uh, explaining my... Uh, a very early experience in my practice with my teacher. Mm-hmm. So this was in the fourth way tradition, and um, one of the systems of the fourth way tradition, although in large part now um, separate from it, uh, is the Enneagram study. And my teacher was strongly of the opinion that I should not, at least in this early uh, he, he never. I never asked him about it later, um, particularly, but he suggested that I not go there. And his issue was that when you have a, an overarching system, the tendency of the mind is to identify judgments <clears throat> about yourself and your quote stage unquote. That that I think was his main concern for me. And because I had a strong tendency to do that, but also about others, about circumstances, about the entirety of experience. So, um, so I think he was very reluctant to link the arising of insight with any substantive system of thought and it has served me well it seems to me at least that's that's how it feels but um, um, but I'd like you to comment on on this on, on where insight comes from not in this not in the system but but um, according to this to this implicit critique that my teacher had about using these tools because they I mean I can understand that you would that you're viewing um, the fourfold way or or however whichever system you want to talk about uh, as a, a set of tools to use but I don't think that you are non you're pointing to the non-conceptual which is to me the, the firmest foundation that uh, I know of for your um, Understanding of how the mystical endeavor is pursued, 
I don't. I, I'm wondering how um, how to hold the kinds of systems that you're talking about and create an opening for insight that is that is not tied to a conceptual system. Mm. Your teacher is quite right in that any framework, we can be trapped by any framework. Right. And, uh, but I, I, I'll, I'll use my own experience. Mm-hmm. I had received a lot of training in insight and compassion. I, but one of the reasons why I had got into such difficulty in, in the three-year retreats mm-hmm. is that I had a very limited capacity to open to experience. Mm. Okay. And the, one of the direct results of that is that I ignored my body yeah. and I simply tried to ride over it for much too long and damage arose uh, was the result and the so I had to learn to open uh, to whatever my body was feeling which at that point was not particularly pleasant because it was in a lot of pain Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was one of the Abilities that I developed uh, through guidance with my friend, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, it was, and that, that was the beginning. On the other hand, my friend had an extensive training in martial arts, and his solution to do anything was to God in his way was kill it. So, <laughs> uh, figuratively, and uh, but just take care of it. And he found the material and compassion, you know, being present with others' pain, very, mm-hmm. very difficult mm-hmm. for a while. Got it. And then developed a very deep relationship with it. And to continue, another uh, aspect is that... Uh, I didn't know how to stand in my experience. I didn't know how to stand in my knowing. And this is essentially the gesture of power. Okay. And so those were, abil- those were things I had to learn, and I did learn, mm-hmm. uh, at least to some extent anyway. Uh, and what I've observed through my teaching is that most of us have a primary relationship with one of the four ways, a secondary relationship with usually two of the others, and a deficiency with the fourth. Okay. And almost always, the one with which we are, in which we are deficient is where we get stuck in spiritual practice. Okay. So you ask about insight, like the moving into the non-conceptual mind. Well, mm-hmm. You have the four things have to happen there. <clears throat> when you're confronted with 
experience which you cannot grasp with your conceptual mind, uh, you have to show up. Sure. Okay? That's power. And in order to go deeper into that, you have to open to it. That's ecstasy. And in that opening, you can't just absorb it, you also have to look. That's insight. And then you have to accept whatever that is that you experience and see. That's compassion. Okay, I'm going to suggest here, though, that um, the reason that Harada Roshi had a hard time answering your question is that he collapsed those four into the entirety of his experience of Zen um, in a certain kind of way. Oh, yes. That, 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 yeah. And, and yeah. That, that, I think, was where my teacher was going, and frankly, where I come from. Um, but, um, but I'm interested in, yeah. in how this... Um, Arises for other people but, because I'm not the only, I'm not the only uh, fish in the sea. Well, but let me let me um, uh, offer you know from my background with these systems, I, I look at it in the way that um, uh, the magicians, not the magician in this this model, but I guess it is sort of a magician like thing. Is it's if it, if it's a useful tool. Uh, then, then it's useful for balancing. I mean, because ultimately, it seems like what you're saying is that insight, the requisite for true insight, non-conceptual insight, is the balance of all of these factors, and that the the model is a useful mirror to guide and provide one information about where one is where one is deficient or where one where where one maybe overemphasizes something and underemphasizes something. And so it allows you to cultivate a kind of a the balance that's necessary for a, a deeper global insight. Well, I'm, you're quite right about balance, and that is the primary way that I have uh, found these helpful. One of my favorite. Uh, things that I like to play with is what's the difference between a vice and a virtue? Well, a vice is a vice no matter how hard you push it. But all virtues become a vice if you push them too far. Mm. And so, for instance, in the book of leadership and strategy, if I can remember this correctly, uh, uh, benevolence Honesty, integrity, and courage are all noble qualities. But the courageous can be provoked. Uh, the honest uh, deceived. The benevolent plundered. And those with integrity can be intrigued against. Thus, the leader keeps these qualities hidden. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> let me jump in. Well, hold on. I, 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 mean, I just want to add that it, se- it seems like this model is like the, 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 a, virtue, a virtue gone too far is a vice, but a virtue uh, not gone far enough is also a vice. 
Well, uh, that's actually true. And, both, and both, so yeah. Somehow they're... Yeah. It's an interesting way of looking at vice and virtue because, uh, again, you know, virtue sort of is a balance, a balance point of attributes, and a vice tends to be a polarization. That's correct. Yes, yes, and and so you push any one of these too far, and you end up looking at the world only through the lens of that particular way. I mean, you run into this in business all the time. Uh, what does a good project manager do? He gets things done, or she gets things done, right? But there's some situations where getting things done isn't the right way to proceed. But So you don't want a project manager. I've developed a time management for my business clients, a time management sheet, based on these four quadrants. Uh, and uh, in, in one of the groups that I, I worked with, we had people from all different departments, finance, production, uh, human resources, um, you know, all these were senior uh, senior executives, and uh, so, in which one of these roles, how do you spend your time? And you you have an intuitive idea of how much you should be spending your time. How much do you actually spend the time? Well, people who are in clearly leadership roles were spending literally 5% of their time doing leadership work. They were either trying to get things done or planning or relating to people and things like that. That was consuming their time and they were not being effective leaders because of that. Uh, the person in human resources said she spends 80% of her time relating to people. But that was her job. Uh, and, and so forth. So all four need to be present to some extent, but they will vary according to what role you're in or what function or what you're doing and things like that. But, uh, and this is why I say I found it very good. It's not, the point isn't to have them exactly balanced. You know, 25, 25, 25. Uh, that's that's a, a silly kind of idealism. You have according to the situation, sometimes you have to move into a leadership role. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just have to get the thing done, and it doesn't matter who does it as long as it gets done. Yeah, I think it's probably more accurate to say you have to have the capacity to evoke yeah. equally all right. of those because situations call for the need for some and others. And if you have a withhold or you always respond to every situation uh, as the uh, warrior, yes. then you're going to be uh, uh, not so nuanced in how you manage situations. Exactly. And that's exactly right. And so I, it's just not so much that you have, you're able to do all of them equally because some people are just better at one, uh, at one of them than the others. Uh, but you have to have a gesture with each one of them. And if you cannot, if you cannot do power then you're going to be, uh, if you get into a conflict situation, you're probably going to get into trouble. Yeah. If you, if you cannot open, then you're going to have difficulty in any relationship that you have. Right. And so forth. So I, I think the, to Rob's point um, about systems in general, is it that this is a, um, a utilitarian approach, or is there something essential about the four that might be different than, you know, like in the, for instance, the fourth way has different 
modalities. One is uh, the law of three, and so that breaks things down into three, and then you can analyze situations and responses and uh, capacities in terms of the uh, three forces, which is kind of isomorphic to the three gunas and the... Uh, uh, three gunas? The three gunas are the three threads in the uh, uh, rajas, tamas, and sattva in oh, the, okay. uh, not in the uh, in Vedic traditions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there are there are threes which seem to show up all over the place. There are fours which show, this one which just shows up all over the place. And I, I've been astonished at all the different um, uh, aspects of life, whether it's spiritual practice or business or relationships or anything. Where these four show up. Uh, there are also fives. You're f- familiar with the five elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are probably others, but it, it, these are the things that... Th- these are basic structures, or it's a way of understanding our experience and, uh, and, and from that understanding, knowing what to do. I, and I find them valuable uh, from that, but you, you can make a rigid concept out of absolutely anything and then it ceases to serve right. and that's what I'm hearing from you is that the, the interest in this is not again a uh, ontological interest like this is the truth uh, it's more like this is a useful tool for access to our deeper potential or our deeper capacity well it's not arbitrary uh, for instance there's a, there's the both, the four ways work both horizontally and vertically. Uh, horizontally, uh, you have power, the order is power, ecstasy, insight, and compassion. And uh, they reinforce each other and they undermine each other. So, uh, a person, for instance, uh, take an addict and, and this is what uh, comes out actually in the, the um, king lover warrior magician mm-hmm. these archetypes an addict uh, is broken ecstasy and uh, they just open and, and they just need more and so they just keep driving and usually you tell uh, an addict you know well uh, do you understand what you're doing and you're actually trying to move them to insight. If, if you think if they understand what they were doing, then they would change their behavior. And that very rarely works. What they need to do is develop a relationship with power, because power is what balances ext- broken ecstasy. And they need to be able to stand in their experience and say no. And every person I know in the program AA or who's dealt with an addiction or is dealing with an addiction because you never really get over it is uh, they've learned two things they've learned that if they continue with the addiction they're going to die and they they choose to live and that choose to live is power Mm. I say you know there isn't any reason in it it is just I want to live, and I'm going to do what's necessary to live. And there are similar ways of understanding how ecstasy balances insight, insight balances compassion, compassion balances power, and so forth. 
that's the horizontal way and they reinforce each other there's also I feel I'm not quite as sold on this but there's one, one can argue quite quite reasonably that without compassion all of the others can be a problem and compassion without the others can also be a problem but I don't think it's completely uh, arbitrary that Buddhism say ends up with a union of compassion and emptiness because it doesn't matter how much insight you have it doesn't matter how much uh, uh, healing or loving capacity it doesn't matter how much uh, power you have if it isn't in the service of others something is wrong So as I look at the, um, you know, the a- analogs to the uh, elemental systems, the, the compassion that you're speaking about feels like it maps most, mostly like in a Kabbalistic system to the earth, and, and even the uh, Malkut, the uh, the tenth Sephiroth is the kingdom. Uh, so it's a, there's a sense of the king, the sense of this, uh, but it, but in a way, the other elements are are functioning in balance within the kingdom and, and then that's how I that's how I would analytically understand what you're saying that, no, that's exactly right because yes. compassion itself is is a, a in a way a deeper uh, it's like a response or a way of being that holds a it has implicit in an equanimity but it also has power because you have to be able to stand in and be present too and it has insight because of the poignancy of the knowing of the uh, uh, ephemerality of all existence, and so all of those things together yeah. hold hold this foundation, this very powerful uh, foundation. After the three-year retreats, I uh, was staying at my uh, with my parents, and they lived outside Toronto, about 30, 30 40 miles away. And there's a llama in Toronto who's a bit of a character. Uh, he's no longer there now he's back in India uh, but I've, I've always liked him and I called him up and said could I ask him if I could come and see him and he gave me this incredibly hard time for about 20 minutes pretending not to know me I mean he hadn't spoken for 7 years but he just no I don't know you who are you and it went on and on eventually he said oh, oh okay uh, so you can come and see me, but I'm very busy, just 10 minutes. I said, that's fine. So I drove into Toronto, and uh, as I was doing my vows, uh, he said, so Ken, you've been in retreat for seven years. Which is better, Christianity or Buddhism? Well, I know this Lama well enough. You don't answer this question, because whatever answer you give is going to be a problem. I said, that's a very interesting question. What do you think? He said, Christianity. I said, why do you think that? Christians do what Buddhists think. And there is an element of truth in that. (laughs) Yes. You know, Christians have been much more about translating compassion into actual action in the world. It's got them in trouble because they've gone too far in a certain sense, so they become... In, in many respects, the, the church has become social service organizations and have uh, diluted their uh, salvific 
uh, function, and that's been a problem. Yeah. But uh, but it's an interesting point. Yeah, it is. Although I, I think that, to be fair to Buddhism, there there uh, maybe outside the monastery, there's also a uh, uh, a tradition of doing and serving. But maybe well, not so much. There is. The, the monasteries have all, in every society, uh, the religious organizations have, have, were the first banks. And that's where the surplus of the society was stored because arguably they were the most honest people and would be the most uh, reasonable and uh, fair, which is equanimity again, in uh, apportioning the resources when there was famine in the society and so forth. So they were the ones that were trusted. Uh, not always. Uh, there were problems with that sometimes, but uh, and uh, so there is. A, a, I mean, there's a very strong relationship with compassion, but the uh, Christianity goes much further than Buddhism is actually trend in general. In yeah, general, I mean, even it. even Jesus, uh, the the stories of Jesus are more about uh, acts of healing. Yeah, although. Some of those acts seem more like uh, allegories for the kind of healing that uh, a Buddha would affect by transmitting insight. Well, well, the function of of uh, religious organizations as a as a bank of resources goes back thousands of years before Jesus yeah. uh, in the Middle East, at least, and um, it's uh, uh, then. In uh, the Fertile Crescent, it would be about um, the merging of the religious function and the political function, and so it's 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 a little more complicated than than that if you go back far enough and include all those examples. Yeah. But um, but I'm still, um, I guess, framing uh, what you're saying, Ken, as as um, a a way that is useful for some or a lot of people, but not necessarily all people who are who are aiming to go beyond the the greater effectiveness in social relationships, which sounds like mostly what you're talking about, and, and aiming towards a salvific um, um, aspect or function. So perhaps I'm mis- mishearing you. My friend and I uh, in coming over these uh, in uncovering the four ways because it was really Angel Sarian that led us into this way of thinking mm-hmm. uh, we were pri- initially were primarily concerned with uh, spiritual practice right uh, and, and that's uh, and, and that's where it wasn't with social functioning at all, uh, but it was uh, in spiritual practice we found it very helpful. And as I said, he was expert in power and ecstasy, and I was expert in insight and compassion. And so, and in the areas that I was deficient, I learned how to de- develop a relationship, and that made a huge difference in my spiritual practice. Well, I... I, I no dispute. How, um, of course, I accept uh, uh, that um, report, but 
um, most people are not coming to a relationship with these with that system or any other um, ideational system from a place of already some profound spiritual practice. So, okay. so I guess that's where I'm. I'm wanting to suggest that well, this this obviously worked for you and your friend uh, that you're describing, but I don't I don't know that it would have worked for me. I think I might have gotten hung up on the judgments about am I am I performing well in this area or that area, and I would have projected that onto other people as well, teachers even as well. Ah, I understand, I understand your concerns now. Uh, so, may I ask you a question? Of course. Which of the four ways would this predilection, and that may be too strong a term, uh, tendency, say, to... Uh, Interpret or uh, to apply uh, categories of thought to every aspect of your life. Which one of those would that fall into? Power, I suppose. Mm. Magician? I don't know. You tell me. Well, magician, I think you're absolutely right. It's a way of understanding. And so, understanding is a little important to you. I think um, it's an interesting question for me because uh, I would actually say that um, there are two sources of understanding. Mm -hmm. And one is the mind, and the other is something senior to the mind, as my teacher would put it. And, okay. and so my efforts have been to cultivate, strengthen, and enable the senior to the mind um, possibility for understanding to arise and to um, not focus on the mind understanding. Yeah. Uh, now, I could ask, how do you do that? But I mean, and it's up to you whether you answer that question because I don't want mm -hmm. to sure. you know, uh, go uh, go too deeply here. But to me, it sounds like you see that you have a tendency to fall into the a misuse of insight, and you have figured out a way to temper that. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know that I figured it out. I think it's the operationalizing the, the advice I got from my teacher. I guess the way I would, uh, using this language uh, and what I know of your personal history, my impression is that when you entered spiritual work, you had a tendency to utilize insight as a substitute for power. And that you would overemphasize insight as a because you were compensated. Uh, this for this is power. right up my alley, by the way, because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing well, exactly the same thing. You're, you're reminding me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, have, I did I have, the same thing. I, 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 I have one sibling, and uh, um, and he was he was the jock, and I was the brain. 
there you essentially. Go. Yeah. And and so I would unsuccessfully attempt to uh, exercise power via the mind, which was completely ineffective against the job. Yeah, you're reminding me of a person I know who was in a three-year retreat. A very, very smart guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, very intuitive and uh, and very very fast and extremely articulate. And there was another guy in the same retreat who was not particularly, uh, you know, he was smart enough, but not not at the level of this guy, not nearly as articulate. But he got where he wanted to go just by sheer uh, force of will. Mm-hmm. So. But this, uh, the articulate guy was always beating up the other guy with words. Yeah. And finally the guy had enough and he said, you know, if you say another word, I'm going to thump you. And the articulate guy realized he didn't have any response to that. <laughs> and okay. perfectly playing out what you're describing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I get it. But I think Stuart's right. We can use one to balance a deficiency in the other, and but that's a problem. Yeah, and I think also I think the the risk that you're pointing out is that if you are overemphasizing insight uh, as a compensation for a, uh, a lack of uh, expression of power, that then your tendency will be to take a system and to overamp it because then you're kind of yeah, you're investing the power that you don't have in a system. And that's and that's the uh, right. a chronic uh, response that I mean it's a risk with something like this because you know people can get onto systems and be uh, really and exciting. I see that so much. Um, yes. You see that in the fourth way. Oh, oh the fourth oh, way my is is my got a cesspool of that kind. Well, of, you see, but you see that that reliance on systems. Uh, Stuart's quite right here. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that that is a overemphasis on a certain aspect of insight. Right. And it actually has to be balanced with opening and warmth. Uh, well, I, I, I don't disagree with that, but I want to get back to, um, in your example of the two guys in the three-year retreat, yeah. and, and you said that one of them was... Um, one was beating up the other with insight. Right. And finally, no, the but, other guy had enough of it. But, he but, was just going to beat him up physically. <laughs> Right, but but I want to focus on the kind of insight. I don't think there's just one insight and you get there. Um, no, it, it, insight is seeing into how things work. And if you see into how things work, then you and you're serving your uh, sense of self, then you figure out how to manipulate things. Well, I understand what you're and saying, so but I, I, I don't, I don't, I think in, insight and manipulation are very, uh, in, uh, manipulation is the broken expression of insight. Well, I, I don't have a problem with that. When you, if you locate, locate insight in the conceptual mind. Yeah. But if you, uh, but, but you oh, use yes. the word, the, the one guy uh, who is so articulate, was also intuitive, you said. Yes, but it was still very much in the... It was still so serving he, a sense so, of self. So the intuition was being um, hijacked by the conceptual mind? Is that a fair... Th- it was being hijacked by his self-interest. 
Well, but that's articulated through the conceptual mind, as I'm understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I mean, but, but that's in, yeah. that's important because in in, in in my experience, one one of the people use spiritual. I know all too many people who have some degree of spiritual understanding, and that uh, so and that is hijacked by self interest. This is why compassion is so important. Well, I, I'm I'm not going to disagree with you, but but. I really, I am convinced that true insight does not arise through or be articulated through the conceptual mind, that it comes from that capacity senior to the conceptual mind. Here, I think we have to be careful of the trap. It's very easy to fall into. You're using insight in a, a somewhat different way from the way that, that I'm using that could the well word be. insight. Well, uh, so cap, I, this insight with a capital I, which you were, you were alluding to, with yeah. like deep or uh, uh, transcendent right. insight, and then there's insight, yeah. which is just now, seeing different things. The, uh, the same thing happens with love. Some people think uh, describe everything in terms of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, and some people describe everything in terms of some other quality. That's where all, everything is included in that. And, and so it has that transcendent quality. I would suggest that people who uh, describe everything in terms of insight, it, they're actually, that, that's probably primarily the path through which they've accessed it. People who uh, say, you know, the world is love or God is love. Their primary way through uh, to that understanding is through ecstasy. But I can tell you from what I've seen that if they don't have a relationship with the others, they cannot get to that transcendent quality of that. I don't. I don't disagree with that whatsoever. Right. Um, But my. So when when I'm talking about, I'm not talking about transcendent qualities of power. Ecstasy, insight, and compassion. These are about four ways of working. I and that's where that's where I think I appreciate your uh, drawing this uh, uh, clarity because that's what my first question was was essentially about. How does this particular system or any particular system um, enable access to the transcendent? And I just don't. Uh, I understand that in your case, in your friend's case, as you started off with, that you guys already had extensive training and at least some kind of understanding of the goal of transcendence. But people who are reading the book, you know, uh, uh, King... King, lover, king, warrior, king warrior, lover, magician. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what I was reading about this um, did not impress me that it's going to be an avenue for most people to do anything other than negotiate a little more um, uh, effective, uh, uh, tra- you know, mundane lives. I agree with you completely. Uh, the weakness in Gillette and Moore's approach is that they think everything can be done through ritual. <clears throat> the ritual take you beyond. That's, that's not true. Well, uh, and in particular this, uh, the importance of the initiation ritual for, yeah. for boys into men. Yeah. Uh, that's 
ritual is very important, but it isn't enough. There has to be practice. To, uh, yeah. But that's why your situation was different. Yes, uh, but, uh, but, I, but I suggested the book because it has a very, very good <clears throat> breakdown of both the, uh, of the four ways and the dysfunctions in the four ways, both at the immature level and at the mature level. Mm-hmm. And it's really useful for understanding what, I, what is going on in me. I, 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 and, I, I understand that. And what effort to make. Mm, there I'm going to differ with you. No, well. be, because, for instance, uh, <clears throat> if, uh, this is using the example I gave before, if I see that uh, I ha- I'm getting addicted to something, yeah. there's no point in trying to understand it. I have to learn to say no. I, 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 I agree with you, but, but there, the methodology outlined in the book <clears throat> is to um, do something that is like the um, fundamental fourth way um, practice of self-observation, but not that. The difference between the um, self-reflection or self-analysis that is advocated in that book is that it is located in the conceptual mind. It's, and a, my, it's a function of insight. It's, a, it's an insight. Well, I, <laughs> once again, I'm getting hung up on this word insight right, right. because we're, we really are meaning two different things. We are, but, and, but in terms of the language of the book, it's... But, it's, 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 but, but it's, it's trying to use insight to, to deal with addiction and it doesn't work. Right. That's, that's right. And, and the... Um, They're psychologists. What do you expect? Well, <laughs> insight is everything. <laughs> I, I didn't. I expected nothing less, actually. But but when they when they uh, bring up this um, uh, way to respond to to any situation by cultivating what you're calling insight, yeah. I'd, I'd call it the small eye insight. Versus the yeah. big eye insight. Yes, for um, sure. They're just they're they're they are offering a tool that is completely useless. No, it's not completely useless. It's useless in three out of four situations. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's it. Boy, that's a fine point, dude. <laughs> since, since you're saying we need balance, I'm not quite going to go along with that. I'm not persuaded. <laughs> It was a good comeback. It was a good comeback. Well, no, the the thing is, whenever you say it, and it's completely useless, it's not true. All right, all right. It's completely useless for for cultivating transcendence, except perhaps as a step. No, you're so right in this. In fact, uh, uh, this is what drives me nuts about so much teaching in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Because people take Mahamudra or Dzogchen, yeah. People try to understand it. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. And which is, in your terminology, using small eye insight. And I have said to them again and again, I said, forget about understanding Mahamudra, forget about understanding about the perfection of wisdom. My father used to say to me, in fact, because I gave him uh, some material to read, he said, I don't understand why you're doing this. Uh, can because it says right under here you cannot understand it. <laughs> <laughs> a sensible response. <laughs> well, it was. I, I, you know, uh, God bless your dad. <laughs> exactly. And so, That's uh, <laughs> in any event, uh, 
and and I say to people, forget about understanding. Rest with the breath. Cultivate devotion, which is ecstatic, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, and just do that and build up your capacity, raise the level of energy in your system, and then you will find that this takes on a completely different understanding without you having to make any effort in understanding mm-hmm. because you now have the under- the energy with which not to be confused when you stand at this level of experience. Yeah. And that plays straight into the ways that you guys work in the in the fourth way. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I think that's, that's very clear. Um, and that's what I mean when I say it gives you tools. It, 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 those analyses tell you what effort to make. It's not using insight. You've got to figure out, oh, I'm not exercising power here. I'm not opening here. I'm not doing this. And then you make that effort, and it changes things. Well, that's why, um, in, in part, why this uh, <laughs> the experience of, of, of looking at the material you suggested, it, for some reason, the, the image of a medieval text about vices and virtues arose. <laughs> and honestly... Uh, there's a, there's a little bit of a uh, yuck response that arises for me when when uh, uh, because in in my my own Catholic upbringing, you know, I would encounter that that sort of material, yeah. and um, it was um, it was a detour at best, and and I think for many people, it can be a detour. I don't dis- dispute that it can. In a limited way, I would say, allow people to move in a more fruitful direction. Yeah. Well, I'm very sorry you got hung up by the book because I never intended it to be the last word on this. I, Thank I, God. Uh, well, I, mean, <laughs> I, I was thinking of, with this material of um, in a particular uh, uh, body of magical work I've seen that you know what the what, the first lesson. Uh, for someone in, in like a ten-step lesson of magical development is to create a magical mirror. And what that means is, you systematically over a period of weeks uh, record. First, you record your faults, and then you record your virtues, and you try to get you know like at least a hundred. You know, you're, you're trying to you know you get a big list, and you and you uh, and you just keep looking at this, but then you kind of organize them in terms of the uh, elements, which is a the fourfold model, and once you've done that, then you can start to specifically take actions to compensate for imbalances, and along the lines of what you're describing. And and um, so, so if you look at what Seward just said, the first effort is power. You start making a list. You start doing something. Yeah. In, okay. in order to make that list, you have to uh, open. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I do this, and I do that, and I do this. And then you have to do insight. You can't make any judgments here. you just got to keep listening. Okay? And through that, you begin to see, oh, it, it, then you, you get a very different, you start getting a different relationship. And now you start to exercise compassion. Like, what were the imbalances, and how do I move in the direction of balance? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that, that's one example. But 
you know, that isn't how it's described. Yeah, but, but no, it's not described that but way. But I'm just showing you how they apply. Yeah, no, I, I understand. And, and my, and this, this is, uh, you know, I, I keep coming back more and more to this as I, as I grow older, which is that there is no one way. And, and this way would not have worked for me, I don't think. This, this, this four, a, a fourfold way analysis, um, I, I just, I think I had to be completely discouraged from doing anything like this. Um, and that's the advice I got from my teacher. So, um, but, but so you, there you go. So, so I've undone years and years of hard work. You, you, would, you would have a hard time undoing a dude. <laughs> And yet, yeah, uh, you know, the embodiment of your practice uh, does represent a process of moving into and taking effort, making efforts in areas where uh, you didn't have. Uh, well, that's abs- that's absolutely true, but not from a conceptual framework, uh, but from 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 being open to a non-judgmental experience. Um, relationship with experience is how I put it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so however that's accomplished, I'm like, wonderful. Um, that book was, was boy, not, uh, not an opening for me. It was, uh, uh, it, it's a sociolo- it's a psychological, sociological analysis of how to fix men feeling like crap. And I, I don't well, think. Well, let me. Okay, I want to ask. Yeah, uh, fair enough. I want to ask, <laughs> ask a question because uh, you you alluded to ritual and uh, like initiations of boys mm-hmm. into men and things like that as ways of helping to provide a foundation for let's say young men to have a sense like they've moved or they've, they've assumed a certain kind of responsibility because yeah. we, and the same thing needs to happen for, for women. Yeah. Yeah. And but, I mean, in fact, a lot of the chronic behaviors we see in society today are, are like these, uh, children and adult bodies who have never actually, uh, had a moment of acknowledgement to themselves that they're assuming a kind of responsibility uh, for the world in their lives. Uh, they're, they're, Yes. And, and that's that's a that's a moment that we're in, and, and I think that there's a good, a reasonable critique that says that we don't have these kinds of initiatory rituals in our society. But the question I want to make is, or is it's interesting for me because ritual comes up a lot in the uh, uh, African divinatory practice that I'm studying, and I'm and I want I want to talk about ritual versus practice, and in a, in a way, I, I, what was occurring to me, and I don't know if I believe this, is um, you know a ritual that's uh, uh, repeated becomes a practice, um, and practice in a way is a ritualization of a certain kind of action. But I'm I'm interested in how you see ritual versus practice in that uh, distinction that you drew earlier. Well. The distinction I was drawing earlier is between a one-time ritual and a uh, method of practice. Which and so, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So okay. Uh, you're uh, in the Tibetan tradition. Many practices are rituals that you do over and over again. Yes, uh, uh, and uh, and that's 
felt uh, well, it it is beneficial. In fact, your book your book is very your recent book, The Magic of Vajrayana, yeah. is very good at uh, explicating that. that yeah, that. and uh, I mean just the uh, the groundwork, you know, the, the ritual of bowing, which is used in Zen tremendously, uh, doing hundreds of thousands of bows. Uh, now, if you invest that with a certain amount of attention, it has very, very uh, strong effects over a period of time. And, and that's, that's the purpose. And uh, you do these things over and over again. When I was talking about ritual, is the idea, and this does happen sometimes, where a person reaches a certain point, and then... It can be a gesture, or it can be a sequence of, of things, and through that, there's a ripening and an opening that takes place. And it may not be necessary for them to do that ritual again. In fact, yeah. uh, and but it, it, but something is changed through that one occasion. Yeah, that actually what was coming up for me that uh, I hadn't quite put together <clears throat> as you're describing this is that ritual has a, a social dimension or a communal dimension. And practice is often a solitary or an individual uh, experience. Or interior. Now, there's the crossover because there's, like, I think the rich, you can do rituals in uh, uh, Buddhism, and as you describe in your book, that are individual practices, but there's also a lot of rituals that are community practices. I'm, I'm going to suggest a slight difference. I think that... Uh, Practice is something that you do to build. Yeah. Ritual is going to uh, allow something to open, or it may trigger something opening. Well, that's interesting, because the, 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 the communal aspect is more of a uh, way of uh, uh, enlisting the uh, support of the community in that opening. Well, I'm not sure it's... Uh, I'm, I'm totally on board. I mean, I understand what you guys are saying, yeah. But this distinction, I'm, I'm applying it in my recollection of my own experience uh, as a uh, parishioner in a, in a Roman Catholic church in my youth when I was going to uh, parochial school. And, and then a little later as an altar boy, mm-hmm. um, helping with uh, that ritual. And... Uh, the um, difference is, it seems to me, is that at f- when I was first learning to genuflect, mm-hmm. which was a big thing back then, I, I don't think anybody genuflects in Catholic churches anymore, at least in America. My Maybe the pri- priest and, and a server or something like that. I'm a little but surprised not, to hear that. Well, I, I don't have extensive experience in the last decades, but when I have... Gone. I don't see, except maybe much older people, my age or older, um, I don't see them genuflecting in the church. And that genuflection had the aspect, if I look back at it, honestly, sometimes it had the, the uh, um, feature of opening. Because going through and feeling my body doing that had a decided feeling to it, and it was um, 
yeah, there was a lot of variability in how, in how that expressed in my experience of, of using my body in that way. But then later, um, uh, I realized that when I was an altar boy, the genuflection seemed to be interpreted by people around me as an automaticity, as we would say in the fourth way. And that, that actually tainted. If I do a genuflection now, I can go back to that original uh, experience. Oh, good. But, um, but, for, but because I was exposed to people who didn't treat it that way around me, I think um, there, was, there was a real problem there. Well, this speaks very directly to what Stuart was saying about community. Yeah, that's true. You didn't have a supportive community. Right. Even though, ostensibly, externally, I did. And that's, and that's the... And, um, uh, you know, uh, and of course, that takes me right back to the suttas and sutras where uh, the Buddha is constantly saying or, or advocating hanging out with people who support your yeah. practice. You know, the, impo- the, the supreme importance of that, really. Yes, and it, I think one of the in the modern age, <clears throat> I think it's been a it's been very very difficult for people to discover that the communities or the people that they thought were supportive are act, had actually very very different agendas in, in play. And, and that's yeah, and I, th- I think that's that's part of what we're, what, what we're referring to here in my experience of uh, being an altar boy later. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But the the um, sense of ritual as a community um, activity seems like what's happening with the ritual is, as you, to use the language you're using earlier, is that you're opening to something. You're opening to a new experience, and the ritual provides the support, and the communities support in the ritual, and then the community's acknowledgement of you as having gone through the ritual is a. Hmm. Um, way to keep the opening there for you to yeah. move into a different the, the way op- of being. The opening is celebrated by the yeah. community. You I see mean, this very this clearly happens, in bar mitzvahs. Yeah, and this happens mm-hmm. with marriages. Like we've we've done uh, performed marriages for uh, 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 people over the years and when I like when I will craft a, the ritual of the marriage, you know, and, and, and think about the words I'm saying, I'm, I'm often finding what, what am I what am I explaining? What am I, what am I talking about? In one case, uh, a couple had lived together for ten years, and then they're getting married. So then, what is the marriage show? What is what is that symbol? What is that ritual? What are we here for? What is what are we saying? And and that and I have to think all that through in order to create a context for. A ritual because uh, it's not you know they're in relationship. So what does this mean? You know what does this acknowledgement mean to the community? What does it, do it mean to them? What's the interaction? And yeah. and, and so it was, it was uh, in that particular case we were doing the marriage at the uh, Alabama Mountain State Park, which and these mounds were always kind of recreated every year as, as a ritual of renewal. So I could I could use the marriage ritual as a renewal or both an acknowledgement of a relationship that's been but a renewal of that relationship in a new way 
and that but that had that communal I was very conscious of that communal sense and in the African traditions you know because those unlike the American system uh, you know the African the, every, everything is community I mean everyone you know in the village life and so rituals were you know if someone transgressed you know uh, you didn't use a punitive criminal system you used a ritual to sort of like uh, so that so that person could be redeemed and come back into society uh, and they knew it and the uh, culture knew it and they had a way back in uh, yes whereas is, you know which is different than the kind of the Christian view of sin where you're tainted forever and therefore uh, you have to be punished and then exiled yeah I'm not sure that's a Christian view but it's the way it seems to be playing out these days <laughs> <laughs> well it is but it, 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 it's a Protestant there's a certain kind of uh, uh, idea of you're a sinner and uh, you have to be punished as opposed to you've made a mistake, you've been misguided, and we're offering you a way back in. Yes. And, and that, that, I mean, obviously... Well, that plays out in the American penal system, yeah, if of that's course. what you're yeah. referencing. But, but uh, so the other question I wanted to uh, get into with this, because you alluded this with your friend, um, you know, he had had a fourth-wave background and a martial arts background, and uh, you had had a uh, Buddhist background... And so it's like different traditions are good at certain things and not necessarily good at everything. And I certainly know, like, I was interested because your friend had a fourth way background. I know from the fourth way that I think it's very good at power and insight. It's not so good at a certain kind of insight. It's not very good at ecstasy at all or compassion. The way and, that, and he yeah. seemed to get his ecstasy through the martial arts, right? Or no, I, I think that a lot of it came through the uh, Gurdjieff work. Really? Yeah. Um, power. Uh, my, so that's yeah. what I'm interested in. Yeah. I don't see ecstasy coming from the Gurdjieff work. As well, much. The, there's you've got a lot of body movement. Yeah. If you do, if you're if you're engaged in the movements, uh, uh, I think that that's a that's a way into uh, ecstasy. Yeah. But I think also, like when you describe him as doing Tai Chi. Energy work feels to me like a uh, access, a strong access to uh, uh, ecstasy. Yes, uh, <clears throat> the uh, I mean the impression that I got from working with him uh, through our you know very long association is that in the Gurdjieff work has got a good relationship with power, a good relationship with ecstasy, and about half of insight and almost no compassion. Uh, and uh, in Buddhism, it varies. Uh, the Theravadins probably have the strongest relationship with power mm-hmm. because their meditation practice comes down to, can I experience this? Hmm. And uh, the, uh, the Buddhism is very, little too much emphasis, I would say, on, on, on insight. Uh, but you also have very strong ecstatic aspects of um, devotion and so forth. So they're all there. But I, uh, I, I, I was closed off to them. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't utilize them to the uh, extent. Well, uh, so I, I mean, I'm curious about this. But I mean, I can see in terms of a general overview of Buddhism that different Buddhist traditions would have more of a 
a different relationship with with these uh, archetypes, if, you, if, that, if that's the word you want to use. Um, but um, ways of working, um, ways of working is better for me. What works better for me? Yeah. But um, um, so so I, you know, I'm most familiar with with Zen. Mm-hmm. Um, not so familiar with Theravadan or uh, uh, or even some of the other uh, Mahayana um, aspects from, uh, that uh, uh, are still in China, I guess, and and have traveled here to some extent. But um, so, what's how does Vajrayana stand with regard to that? That's what that's why I'm. You know, you're describing your your experience and. And and basing a lot of how you came to understand the utility of this system, um, but do you do you see the interrelationship of Vajrayana to these other strains of Buddhism as being fundamentally um, distinguished or not? Well. The more, well, as time passes, the more I appreciate how all of the four ways are present in all all of the practices of every tradition, and I, and I would say not just of Buddhism, but of any uh, vibrant spiritual tradition. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> some of them are more implicit rather than explicit. Okay. Uh, uh, some of them are uh, more emphasized in some traditions, uh, which is can be a problem because if they're emphasized too much, as we were just discussing with respect to insight, and sure. where you, there's there's emphasis on, in Tibetan, for instance, when you get into the debate, which is basically uh, insight, but it can go awry. I remember one of my teachers who is an incredible scholar. Uh, in the Sakya tradition, mm-hmm. uh, used to say that you know you, you get some people in, in, in these debates. They've learned every little trick. They can be very, very difficult to defeat, but they're quite wrong. <laughs> well, this is the, you're but, reminding. But, Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, okay. so, so uh, the and there's also the, the the right way to practice each uh, each of these four ways uh, and this is one of the things that um, despite your uh, unpleasantness with uh, Gillette and Moore mm-hmm. I found very useful because the when people misuse devotion they can use it as in a way to reinforce a sense of self they basically yeah. basically using it to reinforce an addiction Mm-hmm. And so it, it points out how to do this, or that you get people who uh, are, you know, are, are just pushing, pushing, pushing in their in their practice. Mm. With, uh, you know, and they need to learn and develop a relationship with compassion, and, and so forth. You know, mm-hmm. and just feeling their own pain, if nothing else. Uh, and uh, so, so that things become more amounts. I found it very useful that way, but the. Devotional aspect. I mean, it was very clear through the writing, uh, you know, that how very strongly Vajrayana is oriented around uh, devotion and prayer. It runs through 
every practice at every level. And that's what I got from your book, The Magic of Vajrayana, which I never had grasped yeah. before. Which is totally understandable when you think it comes out of the Indian tradition of, of religion. You know, they're very, very devotional. But there's also uh, there, there's power element in it that you, uh, when emotions arise, you meet them. You don't try to bypass them. You don't try to finesse them. You meet them. And uh, one of the things that I wrote in there, and I found this elsewhere as well, you find freedom in the emotion itself, which is, you're, it's not about getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. You really show up with the emotion and you experience it completely. That's essentially a power. The well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that articulation because earlier when you said that uh, your friend had uh, advocated, uh, you know, uh, eliminating it or yeah, feeding exactly. it or you know whatever, whatever, whatever yeah. uh, nasty little metaphor you want to use. <laughs> right. Um, I'm, you know, I, I when I was very young in my practice, I think that was maybe a useful allegory. But I, I soon came to realize that that's, that was not that was ineffective yeah. for me. And I've had terrible trouble uh, with students on this because Jam Control and his and um, his commentary on mind training and seven points uh, quotes a verse from uh, Dharma Rakshid, I think says you know when emotions arise stomp them wipe them out you know it's all this really strong stuff. And people think, oh, yes, I just Surprise. there. And, right. and in our culture, that just translates as suppression, which is highly problematic, as you well know. Uh, and I've said, no, uh, the way that you flatten an emotion is that you experience it so completely that you know it is empty. Yeah. And that's flattening an emotion. But to do that, you have to meet it, open to it, see into it and accept it completely. And feel it completely. Yeah. yeah. So um, you're reminding me, um, or, or you reminded me a little earlier, a moment ago, that uh, um, I have lately been coming to an appreciation of why um, my teacher was not... Um, in the habit of using a lot of the intellectual uh, um, armaments, if you will, armaments, tools, will, tools of the uh, of the fourth way of a lot of the stuff that Gurdjieff uh, wrote out about hydrogens and 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 all this sort of thing. And my God, I've seen misuse of that. It just becomes a way to to automatically judge your experience. Whether it's projections about others, projections about yourself, projections about the world, it's um, it's immensely it, it's a it's it's a toilet. Um, humans, really. humans have an extraordinary capacity to misuse things. I mean, yes. there's the Dharma Center disease. I'm going to be so compassionate that I'm going to give you the opportunity to be patient first. <laughs> 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 that's basically what happens yeah know. and so uh, no your, your teacher I, sounds like he was 
turned off by that aspect of the Gurdjieff work, the tendency yes. to do that. And, and one of the things that I've so appreciated about both you and Stuart is your openness, which is uncharacteristic of a lot of people in the Gurdjieff work. Yeah, that's it. I, I was just uh, uh, having dinner with a friend in Cleveland who's spent probably uh, several decades in the uh, Gurdjieff Foundation, but then he went on to become an Ifa priest in the uh, Yoruba West African tradition. So I... I have a, so kind an, of an interesting conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we, we've, I've, I've known him, uh, you know, uh, uh, for years. Uh, he, he used to come out this way, and and so it was as I got involved in a divinatory tradition. It's sort of thing. Oh, oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, but he, you know, he, he would describe how even today when he you know, converses with friends of his who stayed in the foundation, it's like the, the op- there's no openness. You know, it's like everything is like put through this lens of their way of seeing things, and and even even within the uh, tradition, you know, a, a teacher will tell you never read someone's these person's books, you know, because they're all the, they all have their ideas about uh, what should be revealed when and um, uh, etc. Well, that's at best if 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 it isn't just a dismissal of somebody. Yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a funny it's a funny place, but that's why the the openness that you're describing, I think, is when people are open, they, they'll they'll find other ways. Like my friend found uh, uh, the Ifa tradition. Um, I, I found that for us doing our our teacher was always very open, and so he sort of inculcated that in us. But our bookstore is about opening to lots of different ways. Our uh, this podcast is about that but even our relationship to other uh, traditions and practices and traditions is all you know it's all really about trying to open so that we can complete the things in ourselves that are not uh, 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 fully expressed yes and this is very very important most people when they get stuck in their practice as I said it's one of the four ways that they can't do and it's, it's, it's actually what they need to do in their practice and that's one, one of the main reasons I found it so useful in, in teaching is that I could say I see. Uh, I, 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 when I sense that then I would give people exercises in exactly that uh, hmm. at, at which they would usually find really challenging because it was cultivating an ability that had never been developed and and it was you know like well I I I don't know whether I can do that and yeah well that's where you start I mean I I have to I mean <laughs> my old office partner I think I've told you this before but I just love the memory uh, I came into his office one day and he was leaning back in his chair with his feet up on his desk his arms folded across his chest and he was scowling. I said, so what's eating you, Dave? It was much easier when I didn't have to feel my emotions. <laughs> you know, he would just dump his anger out in the world, and he'd go on his way, and everybody else would be sweeping up the pieces. And I said, no, you have to experience your anger yourself. And he did not like it at all. <laughs> but he was good about it. He, you know, this is what I have to do. Okay, I do it. Damn it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was wonderful. But I, I, I know you found uh, uh, Gillette and Moore made you a, bit, a little bit disgruntled, if I may say. Oh, more than a little. 
um, <laughs> because uh, I mean, in, uh, there are aspects of the book, that book that, um, or what's in that book, that um, really uh, put me off. In the sense that it's the book seems to, and that's the problem with the whole archetypal approach. I mm-hmm. think there's there's not necessarily explicitly spoken, but there's uh, implicit a view that well, kings used to be like this, warriors used to be like this, in in their positive aspect, granted, um, but I don't. I when I look back, I mean, I, I have something of a, of a penchant for uh, for history, um, and as an archaeologist, um, uh, you know, that only reinforces that in, that inclination. And these uh, the implication that that there was ever or hard, there there are very few examples of the. Um, entirely positive aspect of any of these archetypes that you can look at and see in history, and yet, and yet, the, the implication is we of of this book is that um, we have we have so descended in our current uh, status, um, social status, sociological status, and I'm like. I just don't buy that for a moment. I, I've come to the same conclusion, not just uh, not with respect to Gillette Moore, because it didn't uh, irritate me uh, right. that way. But right. uh, when I re, uh, read more closely or between the lines of teachers in the past and so forth, uh, they weren't exactly the paradigms that they're held up to be. Yeah. Uh, and so, I suppose, in a certain sense, we're talking about the mythologizing of the past. Yeah, precisely. Uh, well, it can be helpful, but like anything, if it's taken too far, it yeah. becomes a problem. And so, and then you very quickly you try to start going back in time. This really doesn't work. And uh, it's, but it's the same way of trying to project in the future. If you live too much in the future, you're not living in the present either. And uh, but. I think, I mean, there are lots of aspects about the Tibetan tradition which I just didn't didn't sit well with me, and I just didn't buy. And I think the most important thing in spiritual practice is is to find these qualities within yourself, and the that is where models can be very helpful. But but any model that you take is not so much <clears throat> about emulation, because I think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. It's about you see someone doing something, you think, oh, that is a possibility I hadn't considered. I remember I was at a conference, uh, a very small conference at Esselin, uh, and uh, which I found very unsatisfactory. There's a, a woman there who's a psychologist, I guess, and uh, she said something that was absolutely outrageous and just made me sick to my stomach. And I think it affected a lot. Uh, the, there was only about a dozen people at this conference. I think it affected a lot of them. And then I watched one of the other participants say something to her, and he was able to express his outrage 
and how deeply troubled he was by what she had said without any criticism of her. And I just watched that and I went, how did you do that? And so that was that was important for me because it, it, it opened a, a possibility. Hmm. And I didn't try to do what he did, mm-hmm. but I paid it. I've always paid attention to that, and so that that's always a possibility in, in in difficult circumstances. And so, how can I discover that possibility in myself? Well, you remind me of uh, 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 our teacher was a uh, um, what's what's the term? He took care of. Uh, the um, and oversaw the education at a very young age of his teacher's four oldest children. Um, and um, he learned an immense amount about how to use attention from that, uh, from that from that experience. But the other point he made is that is that uh, one thing that w- was very beneficial in their upbringing, unrelated to him, was that because it was in this spiritual school context, these kids were exposed to every type of human being, pretty much, that you could possibly imagine, um, with, with every weakness and strength that, that you could uh, uh, enumerate. And that was powerfully to the benefit of these kids. And he would advocate that um, children, especially young children, be um, given the impression food of that variety of ways to be human. Didn't matter if it was, you know, not all of it was going to be pretty, obviously. But, um, but to have that wide experience of human expression and nature um, was something that he was very um, positive about. And, and it, it's kind of, a, I mean, it doesn't have to be just children because here you were. Although if, you're, if many adults are, are not open, they are crystallized in a non-open state. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but but um, it can happen, obviously, at, at, any, at any point. But children are particularly... Um, undefended. Most most children are undefended. Yeah, they're more open. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a, 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 that's very interesting. Uh, because when I I look back on my own childhood, I, I think I was relatively sheltered. I certainly was. Uh, I mean, I I, I could. I, I tell stories of being embarrassed later yeah, yeah, as I look yeah. back. But I, I think, I don't think our, the way our society is structured is that it actually supports what your teacher is advocating. No, Precisely. Not at all. I mean, I, I, that's why he made a big point of it. Yeah. I mean, the nuclear family <clears throat> and just keeping kids kind of isolated. And now I think it may even be exaggerated with things like homeschooling where, you know, and we don't have the institutions like, uh, public service or the draft or anything that throws people together with all sorts of different types. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and we see and that actually with the media now, because now people can, uh, uh, 
isolate themselves in in what they hear about the world too. Yes, we have two at least two different versions of even the even the on. institution of playdates. It seems to me, yeah, that's, is is uh, that's, uh, is is a regimentation of exposure to different kinds of experiences. And uh, the first time I heard about it, I was, I was dumbfounded that that's um, become a thing. Well, that's because people are so highly scheduled. You know. I understand. I understand that. Well, On the other hand, when factor. I was a kid, my parents weren't highly scheduling me during the summer. No. And, um, and other times as well. Yeah, I think I uh, remember making swords uh, with uh, pieces of wood and uh, making a little uh, hilt, nailing it together, and having. Oh, we did, we did yeah. that all the time. Uh, I, I mean, that's the idea now of uh, doing something like that. Is just so uncanny yeah. because everyone has toys that are so sophisticated and. Uh, yeah. No, we we would get sticks and every and 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 the, and the when you're doing swords it would slide down and hurt your hand so I thought oh that's what those hilts are for okay let's start putting those on <laughs> you know and, and just discovering yeah. why things were the way uh, from our playing yeah. so <clears throat> going back to the four ways I don't want to get completely off the topic mm-hmm. uh, in this conversation itself you can actually see the four ways playing out sure this is why I find it useful not not because it's a system, but it's a way of... It reflects, I think, something about how things work okay. quite deeply in the world. And the value in it for me is it helps me to attune to the world better. Mm. Okay. I think also the um, uh, what I find useful is it articulates uh, distinct ways of being that we can cultivate I mean mm-hmm. and, it, and and it's interesting to and I got this from uh, reading your magic of Vajrayana the you know as you described the white Tara practice and uh, rather than thinking about it becoming white Tara in the same way you know you don't have to think about what am I going to do to be compassionate you can try to invoke compassion and be compassionate and from that place of being things will present themselves and and, that, and I, I, I I'm just like I'm curious of like that more direct approach seems like it, it is a productive way of, uh, of it can working. be it can be a productive way uh, it can be very productive <clears throat> Um, it can also be problematic if people think that acting is enough. Be, like a- a- acting in the sense of just performing. Right. Uh, that's not productive. But uh, I would often give people different exercises of, uh, you know, in this situation, practice behaving this way. And so it, and it's often a stretch for them because it's usually pushing against some habituated patterns. Imagine your teacher did the same thing. Oh, yeah. He, he, would, he would have me go to the UC Berkeley campus with a sandwich board. Um, and <laughs> I really, really, really had huge internal resistance to it. But I did it. Yeah, okay. So, but you, uh, I'm thinking of one student uh, that... Uh, he was working on the six realms, and he was had difficulty with the god realm. 
So I said, okay, for the next two weeks, one day you get up and you walk around as if you're a god. And you expect everybody to relate to you as a god. Now, the essence of the god realm is, I'm right, and that's just how it is. You sound like you're very familiar with that. <laughs> I'm very familiar with all six realms, believe me. <laughs> the hell realm, I hate you. <laughs> you hate me. <laughs> so, uh, this, but the second day, he was to go around as if everybody else was a god. Hmm. And he had to do this alternation. Alternation is a very effective way of breaking things up. Absolutely. When he came to see me next time, he said, I hated going around seeing everybody else as a god. (laughs) Happier just being a god. But I was at another level a little bit uncomfortable with being a god. Because... What had been uncovered through this exercise is that's how he actually wanted to be. And he didn't want to admit that to himself. Mm. Of course. (laughs) So that's one of the ways that performing, and it's not, uh, you know, moving into these different ways, because you discover the. The other, another way is that I've, when I've been teaching people deity meditation, I would say, okay, what is it like to be the embodiment of awakened compassion? And, you know, as you go about your day, I want to say, okay, this is the situ- here's the situation I'm dealing with. What does it mean to be the embodiment of awakened compassion? And they find that when they did this, their reactive patterns just reared up and they got to see everything that was operating. Hmm. And then the challenge is, okay, those are your reactive patterns. How do you relate to them as the embodiment of awakened compassion? So you just keep taking it deeper and deeper. And it's a way of moving into this way of experiencing in a non-conceptual way. It's, it's very real. It gets re- real really quickly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you, you see, oh, I know I, I should do that in this situation, but right now I can't. Okay, well, that's where you are. Uh, you're reminding me of the phrase from the Gertrude tradition, the terror of the situation. Mm-hmm. And that's um, that's something that people have to be willing to experience if they're going to make any progress, certainly in the fourth way. Yes. Now, you know, if I can I relate to these to the four ways with that I don't want, I, means, I don't want to disgruntle you any further. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. You're not offering the sociological analysis today, so okay. I'm, 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 okay, I'm okay with it. You see, being willing to experience the terror of the situation—that's power. Hmm. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, being able to face it. Yeah. Be I mean, present to it. Be right. present to it, and you know, and and uh, bravery is acting in the face of fear. Not not feeling fair, fear. It's acting in the face of fear, right. and that's a, that's the gesture of power. Okay. And and another thing uh, is that uh, when I was married once, uh, 
uh, we were dri- I was driving with my wife somewhere, and she said, uh, brought up a personal issue. And I went, I said, so do you want me to answer that as your husband or as a teacher? And she looked at me and said, there's a difference? I said, yeah, there's a big difference. She said, that's my husband. I'm sorry you're feeling that way. It must be very difficult. (laughs) Because the gesture in the husband-wife relationship is whatever your partner brings up, you're open to. Mm -hmm. You don't start immediately telling them what to do with it. Or it usually works better if you do it in that order. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, dear. (laughs) Did I tread on a toe? (laughs) No, I just saw an opportunity to inject levity. (laughs) Yes, but your readers will not know the history, or your listeners won't know the history of that one. (laughs) C'est la vie. Okay. How are we doing on time? Oh, we got about uh, nine minutes. Okay, great. We can start to uh, wrap up. Yeah. So, um, so you encountered this um, material um, along with um, your friend mm-hmm. as you guys were fertilizing each other's practices. I guess is a way to put it. That's a good way of putting it. Yes. And, um, and then you began to apply it to. Um, to your own teaching, is that is that more or less the trajectory? I started to draw, to draw on it, uh, yeah, uh, because I just found it was it was very humbling to realize how, how th- through this I came to terms viscerally with how shut down I was in certain ways. I see. Uh, and uh, that was really quite a shock. And uh, and it was not something I could think my way out of. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is, you see, and, and, and I realized, no. And so, okay, I just have to do something. And again, that's power. You just do it. Mm-hmm. No, no matter what the voices inside are. Clamoring for, <laughs> or, or t- telling you not to do it, yeah. Uh, and 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 so I, I just, you know, and says, "Well, this isn't going to work. This, what use is this going to be, etc." Which is how I deflected all kinds of suggestions earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and okay, so you just do it, uh, and and then something begins to change. And so it was seeing that this was absolutely crucial. I would not have crawled out of the hole that I had dug myself into mm. without something like this. I mean, there probably been other ways, but this this was one of the things. And I think my friend felt the same way, that he, he, could, he saw very clearly the limits in the Gurdjieff work that he'd, he'd been doing, and which was like, oh, okay, I need, I need to do more here. <laughs> And, and so he started to apply himself in the same way to, to that. Uh, and the effectiveness of the, the balancing, uh, as, as I said, you know, well, let's take insight as an example this time. You, 
if you're highly manipulative, uh, the <clears throat> people will often try to get you, don't, don't you care about others, they want to appeal to you through compassion. Hmm. Where the way that you get out of that highly manipulative way of relating to things is you actually open to what you and others are feeling, mm -hmm. which is more ecstatic. So you've got to use ecstasy to balance manipulation, not compassion. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this, and it was correct, because almost always the methods we use to correct an imbalance in ourselves are actually opposite to the one that is effective. So is that is that um, <clears throat> analysis show up in these books, or is that something that you've more? I think found? My, I, I think my friend uh, started on this, and that that's what he found because he, he he could see that he's, he's very good about this kind of stuff, and that that may have had something to do with his uh, work in special ed, mm -hmm. uh, where he's understanding brain disorders and hmm. functioning. It may have had something to do with that, but <clears throat> but it was. It was like magic when you turned it the other way. And, it was like, and, and then when I studied what actually worked in different situations in, with people in the world and things like that, I saw, oh, that worked because they were applying the one before and not the one after. <laughs> and so it was, it was learning that the, the, the value, uh, not, not as a system, but as a way of understanding experience and knowing what effort to make okay. uh, that, that's really and, that, and so I started to incorporate it into teaching and then there was the link with the four immeasurables which I was deeply familiar with mm. uh, and uh, it just made uh, and, and that's uh, uh, then I discovered how little joy there was in my life mm. and it's because I had such a, a deficiency in my relationship with power Okay. And went, oh, okay. Uh, and it was okay to feel joy. Good about things. That, that's probably a, a perfect place to uh, <laughs> a joyful note. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, this, this, is, this has been a, a fruitful discussion. I appreciate it because uh, I think I, I find it's. It actually makes me want, despite Rob's uh, comments, it makes me want to look at that modality a little more closely, particularly to sharpen my own understanding of the elemental system and and to understand, to make it more something that's more workable for just both balance in my practice, but also in my, my work situations, too. You have to be careful balance, uh, uh, establishing correspondences between the elements and the four ways. Uh, my friend and I have found that there isn't one. Mm, that's interesting. Well, that, uh, that, that may yeah. be something that... Uh... Now, they're conflated in the Tibetan tradition, but it was... You no, know, why is that there? And that doesn't really make sense. Uh, Nakpa Rinpoche, uh, uh, what's this? Who wrote... Uh, Nakpa Chogya, that's right. Uh, his books... Um, Delineates the difference between the the two uh, 
the two and, and how they don't actually line up. That's interesting. Well, I'm not sure because Eastern elemental systems are different than Western elemental systems. And, and that may. And because the, the, the Western pi- elemental system, I mean, it plays on these same archetypes, even like the suits of cards, like the king, the queen, the, uh, yeah. to the jack, and the uh, page. Um, and then, then the four suits are the four elements. And so, in a way, you know, it, seems, it feels to me like the Western system has a more direct correspondence. Well, the, the elemental systems vary greatly from culture yeah, to culture because the five element system in Chinese has virtually no correspondence with the five elements. Yeah, uh, exactly. Earth, water, it's very fire. different. Yeah. And, and the African elemental system is uh, broken up somewhat differently, which yeah. is actually, yeah. as a uh, way of sort of counterbalancing mm-hmm. an overabundance of insight, is I find just fine because I, I don't get stuck in like one. It's like, okay, we. <laughs> Like I said, is it a, is it a uh, you know a, um, uh, a polar system of coordinates, a rectilinear system of coordinates? Is it a uh, now he's talking differential geometry? Uh, uh, coordinates. He's uh, deliberately sending things over my head. Is it Riemannian? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like get your coordinate system, and then you can start to uh, talk about transformations. Yes, but I, I, I'm going to use your analogy. Don't try to make. Polar, uh, just using a two-dimensional framework here, don't try to make polar coordinates uh, correspond to Cartesian coordinates. Right. That's not going to work. Right. So uh, I'm just throwing that in as a caution about the elements yeah, yeah, exactly, and the four exactly. ways. Yeah, I, I, I get you. And you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, Ken, you're right. <laughs> well, on that note... <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you for joining us. It's been a very interesting Oh, discussion. you enjoyed that, didn't you? <laughs> uh, pretty clearly. Yeah, I did. All right. Thanks. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Ken McLeod, Buddhist teacher and author of the newly released book, The Magic of Vajrayana. In today's conversation, we explored four ways of working in spiritual practice, sometimes characterized by the archetypal forms of the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. We discuss how these ways, compassion, will, insight, and ecstasy, can be brought into balance for a richer and more complete spiritual engagement with life. One of the more innovative Buddhist teachers today, Ken McLeod is known for his clear explanations, poetic translations, and pragmatic approach to practice. He is one of the first generation of Western teachers in the Tibetan tradition and one of the few to be authorized to transmit the full scope of these teachings to students. In particular, his approach resonates strongly with those whose path lies outside established institutions. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary in discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.